anything wrong in this situation. He took a pitch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Lee. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Germans Bob Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers. We know it. Ask me about my win. So it's been about two and a half weeks since the Mets had an agreement with shortstop, soon-to-be-turned third baseman Carlos Correa. And some time has gone by, I think, to reflect. Obviously, it didn't work out. He ends up signing a six-year, $200 million contract with the Minnesota Twins with some options that could move it up to 10 years and $270 million. And I think it's time to reflect as a fan of that particular team. Now, you could root for whatever team you want. You're going to have a similar reflection on your offseason. By the way, not that far away from pitchers and catchers reporting within the next month or so, right? A little after that, we'll start to see some actual spring training baseball games. Next thing you know, baseball season's about to get started. And you know, I've looked at it, and being a Mets fan, um, I really feel like I'm kind of pigeonholed into taking one of two points of views. And it may apply to a lot of things when it comes Mets, but it also has a lot to do with this offseason because the general perception is you're either going to feel one of two ways. And there's no middle ground. There's no in-between. If you are really down on the fact that the Mets had to deal with Carlos Correa and for whatever reason it didn't work out, then you're knocking the Mets offseason, saying essentially the Mets went out there and put the same team on the field for another given year. They won 101 games, but it wasn't good enough. They finished second to the Atlanta Braves. They lost in a wild card round to the San Diego Padres. And in that fan's mind, the team did not get any better. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where you talk about the exciting part of the offseason, what it was going to cost to bring the Mets pending free agents or equivalents back to the team. You knew it was going to cost money. And to say that the Mets probably did pretty well this offseason. I think they have a better bullpen. Uh, that fan may say, hey, they're offensively there's more opportunity. And their starting pitching may very well be better. So you're stuck. It's either extreme A or extreme Z. And I'm putting my own point of view in there saying that you have every right to be disappointed about Carlos Correa and that deal, which, by the way, if it was never going to happen, why even throw it in our face in the first place? And obviously, Steve Cohen coming to the agreement with Scott Boris, who makes things a little bit difficult as an agent, which you probably understand. By the way, I also think he belongs in baseball's Hall of Fame, and I'm talking about Scott Boris. I, I look at it, and I just, hey, wish that the Mets never got close to it. Because I think you'd be a lot more optimistic as a fan if you looked at the offseason without the potential of a Carlos Correa signing. But I've been a Mets fan as far back as I can remember. Probably not long enough to remember the 1986 World Series in person. Obviously, I have embraced it. It's part of my team's history. I know what happened. But I look at the history that I've been a fan, and I've never seen the Mets make that one last move that when you think they were good, hey, we're going to go out there and just 
demand excellence. And that's what I felt when the Mets made the signing of Carlos Correa. It never became official, but they had an agreement. And I said, listen, there's a lot of talent on this team. This team can go out there and compete for a World Series championship. But with Carlos Correa, I kind of feel it's really going to happen. And that's going to, as we get into the prolegominal point that I want to make in this show, it has to do with Carlos Correa's 12-year, $315 million agreement with the New York Mets. And there's a couple things that I feel when it comes to contracts in baseball that I, I don't think are as important as people make it out to be. Because, listen, we're not the ones paying them. I'm not. I'm not Steve Cohen. I will never be wealthy enough to be able to make the financial decisions that Steve Cohen can make. Or any baseball owner. Or any sports team owner for that matter. So therefore, I could give the slightest shit about how much a player is going to be made that's on the team that I root for. Because I'm looking for one thing. I'm looking for the team that I root for to go out there and win a World Series championship in baseball. And that's all I want to see with the Mets. So if Carlos Correa was going to sign with the Mets for 12 years and $315 million, and the Mets were going to win the World Series in two of the next three years, I would believe that that would be a fair enough trade. And I wouldn't care if you were paying Carlos Correa until he was 90 years old. I believe they should have just done the deal anyway. I don't care about the medicals. I don't care about how he's going to be in year 7 or year 8 or year 10. I want to win a freaking World Series championship. This baseball season at its conclusion, when the World Series finishes, will be 37 years since the Mets' last World Series championship. And like I said, I have never watched and observed and been part of a season as a fan during a World Series championship season for my team. I've watched as every other team in the Mets division, the division they've been in since 1995, the Braves winning two World Series championships, the Phillies winning, the Marlins winning twice, and of course, the Washington Nationals winning in 2019. And as a fan of a team that... I don't know what it feels like to win a World Series championship. So that bothers me. That puts to me, I don't know, kind of a sense of urgency to want to see my team win the entire thing. I look at the 2022 season and how things worked out for the Houston Astros and fans of that team, fans of the Braves in 2021, fans of the Dodgers in 2020, the Nationals in 2019, the Red Sox in 2018, the Astros in 2017, the Cubs in 2016, the Royals in 2015, the Giants in 2014, the Red Sox in 2013, the Giants in 2012, the Cardinals in 2011, the Giants in 2010, the Yankees in 2009, the Phillies in 2008, the Red Sox in 2007, the Cardinals in 2006, the White Sox in 2005, the Red Sox in 2004, the Marlins in 2003, the Angels in 2002, the Diamondbacks in 2001, the Yankees in 2000, the Yankees in 1999, the Yankees in 1998, the Marlins in 1997, the Yankees in 1996. The Braves in 1995, the Blue Jays in 1993, the Blue Jays in 1992, the Twins in 1991, the Reds in 1990, the Athletics in 1989, the Dodgers in 1988, and the Twins in 1987. All those fans 
know what it feels like to be a World Series champion or to root for a team that's been a World Series champion. And the more teams that go by that win since the last time the Mets won brings more of a sense of urgency for me as a fan to want to see a victory. So I'm going to express my disappointment in the fact that the Mets let anything get in the way of their agreement with Carlos Correa, who I believe would have been that final player to put them over the top and win a World Series. That being said, I'm not shitting on the team's entire offseason. I think that they retained the players that they needed to retain, starting with Edwin Diaz. Edwin Diaz is going to be the anchor of that bullpen. Adam Adovino was a very big return for them. Same with Brandon Nimmo. And the fact that it didn't work out with their three starting pitchers that were all free agents, all three of them ended up going somewhere else, you can make a case that the Mets replaced them with maybe three better pitchers. Justin Verlander is the AL Cy Young Award winner for last year. Jose Quintana, I'm not totally sold on, but I don't mind him as a fourth or fifth starter. Kodai Senga has been one of the best pitchers in Japan for the last handful of seasons, and if he could be anything close to what he's been in Japan, then the Mets may very well have three aces. So I'm looking at this offseason from an optimistic standpoint, and I like the team. I like the way they're set up. I like the way they're poised to compete in what's going to be a tough National League East with the defending NL champion Philadelphia Phillies, the five-time defending division champion Atlanta Braves, and maybe a little bit from the Marlins and the Nationals. But obviously you're looking at baseball, and I what I enjoy about baseball is when a lot of teams are in it. I love what the Padres are doing. The fact that they are insisting on wanting to be one of the highest paying teams in Major League Baseball. But because you know what? The general public will tell them to be low budget, to be small market, to be the Rays, to be the Pirates, to be the Cleveland Indians. And I like the more teams that are involved, which makes it, whenever your team happens to win a World Series, it puts something in your mind to say, hey, I, they did it in a in a time where there were really good teams out there. So I could be down on the Mets for letting the Carlos Correa deal slip away and say that they should have gone 12 years and $315 million in spite of whatever doctor said anything about his ankle because I can care less about what Carlos Correa is getting paid in 2030 because I believed that this is the player that was going to put the Mets over the top, help them win multiple World Series championships in a short period of time. And if that happened, I'm flabbergasted in a positive way. I'm euphoric in a a mood and a position and a, a state that I've never been before as a sports fan. So I could hate the Mets' take on Carlos Correa and say that he should be with the Mets, a Met player right now, and still be optimistic on what has been a very good offseason. Point number two. You're thinking about the football playoffs this weekend, the four matchups that are set up. I think there's four distinct underdogs when you're talking about the games that are played this week. And that's Jacksonville, that's the New York football giants, that's Cincinnati, and then that's also the Dallas Cowboys. I think they're distinct underdogs. But what stands out and what I find interesting about it that there's a quarterback and a very important player on one of the teams that is the biggest underdog of the entire weekend. And that San Francisco 49er quarterback, 
Brock Purdy. And here's a player that has played well. I wouldn't put him up on a Patrick Mahomes or MVP type of performance, but he's played very well. He's done more than just be a system quarterback with a San Francisco 49er team that has a ton of talent. They got a lot of offensive talent. They got a lot of defensive talent. From a coaching standpoint, it looks like they're very well prepared for each and every one of their games. And because of that, you could talk about the last pick in last year's NFL draft and have him lead the team and feel like the 49ers should be expected to win this weekend. Now, what does that mean for the 49ers' future? We'll have all offseason to talk about that. You're talking about probably as long as Trey Lance is healthy, as long as Jimmy Garoppolo is healthy, uh, you're looking at the probability of three quarterbacks being on this particular roster that may very well be starting for teams in the NFL in 2023 going into 2024. Now, where where does Jimmy Garoppolo end up? Well, I think he's going to play out the last year of his contract. If the 49ers can roster him somehow and make a trade, they'll do it. I think the demand for Jimmy G is going to be a little higher than it was last year because Garoppolo, at least to a lesser extent, is coming off of an injury. He was coming off of more a more serious injury last year. You can make a case that he may be available to play as the backup quarterback for the 49ers this week, but also shows how the 49ers value Brock Purdy and the fact that somebody that is not looked at as a top first round, second round, third round pick in a quarterback draft, which I said sucked, is kind of making me look bad. Which is weird because the quarterbacks that were supposed to make me look bad, the Kenny Pickett's, who I think is going to be a starter for the Pittsburgh Steelers, will wait a couple seasons to see if he becomes a legitimate Steelers quarterback. I don't think he's going to be Terry Bradshaw. He's not going to be Ben Roethlisberger. But let's see. Can he be a, a quarterback that'll be on the Steelers for his second contract? We'll see. You know, look at the Malik Willis's and the Sam Howells and other quarterbacks out there, whether it's Desmond Ritter or really anybody else that I felt were all overrated because of the need in the NFL to have a quarterback and teams' desires to always think that the quarterback that's going to be under center for them for the next 10 years is always on the outside in the college football draft. I didn't believe that exists this year. The only way I have any belief has a little to do with Brock Purdy. So I give him credit. He's had an outstanding season. And you know, for a 49er team that, for whatever reason, I haven't rooted for in the past, I rooted against Jim Harbaugh. I rooted against the last 49er team that made it to the Super Bowl. I don't know why. It's just my, my gut was not really on their side. Certainly rooting for Brock Purdy. So thinking about um, other things going on in the world of sports, I said I was going to dedicate an On This Date in Sports History segment to every one of my shows, so we're going to get into that. So on this date, January 21st in 1958, St. Louis Hawks big man Bob Pettit was the first member of a losing team to be voted All-Star Game MVP. 28 points, 26 rebounds, 
as his team ended up losing the mid-NBA classic. Now, I'm using this as a springboard to talk about Bob Pettit as far as him being one of the most underrated basketball players in the history of the sport. There's a lot of attention to Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell and Elgin Baylor as far as being some of the great bigs of the past. And of course, guys like Shaquille O'Neal and Tim Duncan and others, you talk about their dominance in the sport. And very few times Bob Pettit's name is mentioned. He is eighth in the history of the NBA in scoring average, third in NBA history in rebounding, and the only player in the history of the National Basketball Association to average more points and rebounds per game throughout the course of his career is none other than Wilt Chamberlain. Why is there not more love thrown towards Bob Pettit? Not just as a Hall of Famer. He was inducted just five years after he was done playing in 1971, so the sport got it. The most saturated and watered-down Hall of Fame in all of sports got it. I don't know if your average NBA fan gets it and puts Bob Pettit in the appropriate enough spot when we're ranking him amongst the top NBA players in the history of the sport. In 1978, Roberto Duran became the undisputed light heavy. I'm sorry, lightweight champion with a 12th round TKO of Esteban de Jesus. And that unified the title. Roberto Duran, of course, one of the more dominant lightweight fighters in the history of the sport, um, had a moment on this date in 1978. 1985, Dennis Potvin became the second, I'm sorry, tied Bobby Orr for second in the history of, I'm sorry, all time in hockey when it came to goals scored with his 270th goal. And the reason that I'm fumbling over this is because you think of something that happened four years later to the day when Wayne Gretzky at age 28 became the second leading scorer in total points, passing Marcel Dion. Of course, there has never been a GOAT of any sport that is up on the level of Wayne Gretzky. I could talk about any greatest of all time in any sport, and I'm pretty set in my own ways when it comes to it. But there's no player that has ever dominated a sport like Wayne Gretzky. To tie Marcel Dion for second all-time when it came to total points scored in his age 28 season, there hasn't been anybody in any sport to dominate it the way Wayne Gretzky has. And the fact that Dennis Potvin just four years earlier tied Bobby Orr, and that was considered a big deal when he scored his 270th goal. Wayne Gretzky scored almost 900 over the course of his career. Uh, You're talking about somebody that really did dominate a sport more than Tiger Woods did, more than Serena Williams did, more than Babe Ruth did, more more than Michael Jordan did. You could put them all together, and none of them re- or changed or reorganized the sport the way Wayne Gretzky opened up the National Hockey League. couple birthdays, Detlef Shrimp, former two-time NBA six-man of the year, but also a very good starting player in the second part of his career. He averaged over 19 points a game a couple times a season, turned 60 today. And Sam Mealy, the former manager of the Minnesota Twins, who went to the World Series in 1965, losing to the Los Angeles Dodgers after winning the AL pennant, would be 101 if he was alive today. 
This is the past ball show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Of course, a reminder, if you're watching the show for the first time on YouTube, you could also listen to the show either on Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon Music, any way that you could catch your podcast. We'll be back with you soon, probably talking some football about a you know great division round weekend when it comes to the National Football League and playoffs. And like I reminded you earlier in the show, baseball is right down the corner. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. Chris Bryant was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. Now they come out as the biggest... Major League Baseball manager apologist. It'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude who dude disguises another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside and hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at They put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right better give him a contract extension. You damn well right better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion.